Welcome to Small Biz Matters this week. We've got a superstar of the small business community with us, Mark McKenzie, who is the chairman of COSBOA, the Council of Small Businesses Australia. And we're talking all about adaptation and the policy into the future that COSBOA is speaking to the government on behalf of small business about. Now, if we think about what's going on right now in all this sadness and concern over current and ongoing crises facing Australia, it's reassuring to know that COSBOA is on our side. The upheaval for small businesses caused by the catastrophic conditions in huge area of southeastern Australia should not be underestimated. But whilst those in the political space may argue about whether or not climate change actually exists, we are caused, it is caused by human impact or natural causes. We can't underestimate the fact that the changes are here. There can be any more debate about the fact that drought is here. The most devastating fires in, since records began are here. Climate change is here. The question only remains, what are we going to do about it? Mark McKenzie is the chair of the COSBOA organisation and he's here to chat to Small Biz Matters all about what the future holds for small business and how uh, COSBOA is supporting small business right now during the conditions that it's facing. Welcome to the program, Mark. G'day, Alexi. Thanks for having me. Now, um, we've spoken in the past uh, about the role of COSBOA. Could you just remind uh, our listeners about what COSBOA does on a granular level, if you wish, and who you report to and who reports to you when you're speaking to government? Sure. Well, we're first and foremost a policy advocate. So we look to give voice to the policy issues, the regulatory concerns, the operating environment which small businesses operate. We're different to local chambers of commerce in that we are what's called a federation of associations. So our members include the associations that represent businesses. So for instance, we've got the Pharmacy Guild that represents your local chemist, the Meat Industry Council that represents your butcher, um, at the ACATMA organisation, Australasian Convenience and Petroleum Marketers, who represent your service station, independent grocers' bodies. So bodies that effectively champion issues within their own individual sector. And then what happens with COSBOA is where we have issues that are common across sectors, they're the issues we tend to focus on. So they might be things like access to capital, they might be issues associated with industrial relations, might be issues with um, associated with the cost of electricity and those sorts of things. So they're common across the board. So what we do as COSBOA, and we've been around for 40 years, is we then use the research, use the resources of those industry bodies, all their intelligence that they're collecting from on the ground, and use that as a basis for advocating for change at a federal government level. And who do you advocate with? Who do you speak with? Who are you in the room with when you're advocating for those um, smaller meetings, uh, small businesses? So typically for us, it's government ministers. So everyone from the Prime Minister's office down. Um, so the Treasurer, the Small Business Minister, Michaela Cash. More recently, David Littleproud, who's coordinating the disaster management and recovery system in that area. Um, so any minister that actually has a portfolio, every federal minister that has a portfolio that's actually relevant from time to time we will talk to states and territories on things like payroll tax and those sorts of burdens or specific development. So we spend a bit of time focusing on the needs, infrastructure needs and requirements of Western Sydney, for example, which is fast emerging as the fourth largest economy in the country. So the need to support small business growth in that area is obviously an issue that's shared between the state and the Commonwealth Government. So in short, been around for 41 years, um, formed largely to give voice to the issues of small business. Most small businesses, we know, they don't have time to um, sit there and deal with government and those sorts of issues. We're specifically set up to give voice 
to the issues that are of concern while small business owners continue to operate on managing their business in the face of all sorts of challenges. Now, we know that small businesses are basically the barometer of the economy. We're the largest employer. We're the engine room of the economy, as politicians keep on telling us. Uh, you're perfectly positioned to get that information through small business associations and through, through government. Um, what sort of policy successes have you had, say, in the last 12 to 24 months that you can quickly let the listeners know about? Well, I think one of the things we've been talking about for some time has been access to capital. Um, particularly in the wake of the Royal Commission, but prior to that, the sort of lending criteria and the business rules that have been applied by banks and other organisations that make it really difficult for you as a small business owner to get loans. Typically, you hear a cry from small business owners that the only time a bank will lend them money is when they no longer need it. Um, mm. And they're having to put up assets to secure their businesses, but still spend $20,000 with their accountant to put a business plan as to what... Um, that business is going to do over time, which tends to be largely ignored. So about 18 months ago, we convened a, a meeting jointly with the Reserve Bank Governor and the head of the Australian Bankers Association and ASIC and APRA, a number of the prudential bodies that work in this space, to really understand why we were getting barriers. And what we've seen there, if I think of one of the big successes, is the federal government come out with two major funds. Now, it'll probably be unknown to most of your listeners, but it's the Business Growth Fund um, that is designed to put capital behind the lending criteria, almost on a basis of providing security to those funds and making it easier for the banks and other financial institutions to loan money. So most of us would understand that in a lot of cases when we're trying to access capital from banking institutions, for example, we have to put our house on the line or we have to show the business, um, as you said, you have to put the forward planning into place. Are you saying that this sort of um, reserve is there in ex instead of us having to put our homes on the line? Is that sort of what, what place it is? It's an iterative process, but what we've been doing is working with them around the rules that apply to small business so that we're getting a greater level of low dock and unsecures loans, securitised loans, so that for a lot of people, particularly starting out or a business that's been operating for some time with a proven cash flow, um, lobbying the regulators because the banks tend to lend according to the rules that are put on them and the Reserve Bank governs some of that as does um, ASIC, the Australian Security Investments Commission and APRA which we'll all know through the Royal Commission have been criticised around the bank's behaviour. So this is a process by which you keep chipping away at the rules so that it becomes easier to lend money to small business. We saw an incredible tightening, almost a complete aversion to lending money to small business that has relaxed and we've been part of working with the government on that one. Another big one's been merchant fees. So, um, you know, for a lot of uh, retail businesses in particular, they've seen a tripling in the costs associated with processing electronic payments. And all of us now are using mobile phones or cards to tap. We saw a dramatic escalation in those costs that went pretty well unseen and unheard. And so we called that out and have basically been working the Reserve Bank and governments to introduce what we call merchant routing. This is where I get to choose which path my payment is processed, with one being more expensive than the other. So one's the old FPOS where we put our pin in and the other one is where we tap um, and we go via an electronic gateway. And that second one is effectively the one that became more expensive for debit transactions. And that quietly increased over the last three years to the point that some businesses were seeing a threefold increase in their electronic processing charges and didn't understand where it was coming from. That was called out by a number of our members as a result of feedback from their members, and we jumped onto that one as well. Um, instant asset write-off is the other one. 
So we've, most uh, people will know now that the government has policies in place whereby if I'm a business and I invest in an asset or infrastructure, um, currently up to $30,000, I can depreciate that straight away so I can put it against my tax. Mm. Uh, we were a large part of getting that introduced for the first time four years ago and we continue to advocate for that to be continually increased because 30000 you know, if you're a tradie, it only buys half a ute. Yeah. <laughs> and so we sort of say we need to get to a point that we continue those sorts of support. So there's three examples that really came from our members then promoted into a Catman's Council um, and Cosboa's council to the point where we basically said, let's develop an advocacy position. We do our research and then we go into government and push hard for it. Mm. it like I said, I mean, it, it, small business is so disparate and we are across so many different sectors. It's good to know that there's one umbrella organisation that's really looking at the stats and then responding because of the actual on the ground issues that are occurring, let's talk about um, let's talk about obviously what's going on now. Now, those of us who are fortunate and love to live in the cities around Australia may not really understand what the impact of of these fires and conditions are having on small business in regional Australia, unless we're sitting in front of the news 24-7, which is something that's not easy to avoid. Um, we might have to pay more for our food at some point, but we can largely continue unimpeded with our own business. But in the real world where small business operates in these towns and centres, what have been some of the impacts of drought and these massive fires that you've um, had information coming back from your members and your organisations in relation to? Well, you rightly mentioned drought. So I suppose while we've been focusing on the fires, certainly over the last two weeks, um, it's also mindful to re recall that we saw fires on the mid-north coast and south-east Queensland in October and November. There's sort of a distant memory now as we're looking for the fires just recently. But I think one of the key things is a lot of businesses have already been struggling as a result of the drought in regional and rural areas. So we've been hearing stories like hardware stores in western New South Wales that typically would have seen you know, a 500 to $600 spend that was coming from local farmers as they were, you know, pulling up fencing wire and other tools to support their business. But because the farmers have basically been on life support, that spend has disappeared to one or two LPG bottles that are actually purchased through the month. So we've seen 80 to 90% declines in revenue of those sorts of businesses. And the current drought's been going for three years, right? The last year, the 2019, was incredibly tough for most businesses and we were starting to see towns run out of water. But as the economic output of a local town, because I'm not selling agricultural products, I'm therefore not buying from the newsagent or from the baker or from um, the grocery store or hardware store, therefore they've got less money circulating around the economy. So the fact that there's so little to spend, most of these businesses were on life support. In areas like the Gippsland area and the South Coast that have been affected by drought for some time, they're all anticipating the seasonal rush that tends to occur over the Christmas New Year period. Now, without putting too fine a point on it, sometimes that amounts to 40 to 45% of my total annual revenue, that six-week period. And we've currently got a situation where they've either been wiped out or roads have been closed in their local area to the point that they're almost ghost towns. So instead of bustling with tourists in the mountains and on the hill, on the coast, we're actually seeing towns where there's just nobody there. Now, for a lot of those businesses, they've stocked up. They've stocked up in anticipation. So supermarkets have brought increased inventory into the space. Bakers have actually brought additional people on, on hand. Um, cafes and so on have been gearing up with summer personnel to support them through that period and there's no one there. And I suppose we don't really costs. think about the knock-on effect, do we? I mean, when we, you know, we hear about, you know, a mining 
boom or a mining issue, but we, we know we sort of get the knock-on effect or, you know, we heard about when uh, the car industry collapsed and mechanics and, and people who were producing goods for the car industry. But this is something that's happening, it has been happening for three years, where um, a centre where agriculture is their main source of income. And the farmers in these conditions are the ones with the buying power, I guess, if you will. That's and then right. the knock-on effect is all those small businesses that support them. That's right. And I suppose within that context, then, if you think about it, so what I've had is a background level of anxiety, not knowing when the rains are going to come and when I'm going to get out of this. And then just as you're starting to think, well, okay, at least I've got a summer period that's going to get me to a point where I can get back on my feet, I get wiped out. So the biggest issue we're actually hearing is this sense of, hell, what am I going to do? I've not just lost my home, um, I've lost my business and in a lot of cases I've lost the local community I'm operating in. So some of these small alpine towns or the small south coast towns, been a lot of focus on Cabago, there's a case in point. It's in a big farming region down in that bigger valley area. So it's got a lot of people supporting it. But in fact, that's actually been wiped out through the fires. The town itself has been wiped out. So if you think about it from an emotional perspective, our biggest focus at the moment is around the emotional well-being of all the business owners that are involved. And that's the immediate feedback that you're getting through your professional associations, that right now the biggest issue is that of mental health and thinking of the future and what they're going to do? Yeah, we've been working for the past two weeks um, as government's been asking us what can they actually do, and the number one issue has been mental well-being. So yesterday... Um, we actually convened a teleconference with a number of our industry bodies. There were 18 all told. And the same issue came from every one of them. Yes, we're looking for financial assistance. Yes, we're looking for long-term assistance. But at the moment, it's just basically about wrapping your arms around people who are emotionally fragile to make sure effectively... This is a time, unfortunately, when guns come out on, on farms and businesses. And our big issue here is to actually make sure that we've deployed those social resources so that we mitigate the knock-on effect of people taking their own lives. Is that the role of government or is that the role of organisations such as the Red Cross and the Salvation Army and then how does that coordination process happen at the higher level? Yeah, so that's definitely the role of organisations like the Red Cross and Salvation Army and, you know, I have to put a shout-out to them. They were on the ground instantly and have been on the ground for the past three months and we're very conscious of that process. But you've got Beyond Blue and other organisations that are actually set up to run that process. We see our role as very much maintaining a focus on that as being a priority so we don't lose sight of that while we're doing other things like putting electrical connections in place, re-establishing data networks and restocking. The key issue is to look after the human element because small business is all about people. That's right. Now, you just mentioned infrastructure there, which is actually a really important part of getting businesses back online, um, helping them to access the, obviously, the electricity required. Um, let's talk a little bit about the forward planning for COSBOA around uh, electricity and energy usage. You mentioned, just as we were on a break before the program, about um, finding a way to adapt um, in these in this changing times about our energy usage. Uh, what's COSBOA's thinking on that, and how are you pressuring or advocating for small business to find that adaptability with, with government? Yeah, so if you think about our energy system at the moment, what we tend to do is we have very large power generation sites. So in the Snowy Mountains, we've got hydro water that's actually used to spin turbines and generate electricity. We have coal-fired power stations around the country, black and brown, that are actually generating electricity. And in some areas, we actually have gas fired turbines. Um, then you've got solar arrays and wind farms are actually created. But our tendency here is we have a single 
large facility that generates electricity. And then we use transmission lines. Above ground. Which run through the bush Mm -hmm. on high-powered lines um, that go into these areas. So what happens when you get a bushfire? They get wiped out. That's right. Um, Or they're disconnected. That's exactly right. So there's a question here of, look, if it happened once in a blue moon, which probably you could argue happened in the 60s, so we didn't have a lot of it around and we weren't so, so dependent on electricity, then you could actually say you could probably get away with it. But if we think about all the bushfires, there's been eight major events, whether they be the Black Saturday bushfires um, in Victoria or the bushfires that were raging in Queensland a couple of years ago, the current fires we've got. So we're getting this happen on a repeated basis. And a large part of the delay is the time taken to reinstall those lines. There's a huge cost that goes with that. And we tend to bear that on our electricity bills. When you look at your electricity bill, there's a charge for electrons and then there's a charge for maintenance of poles and wires. If we were to work on a basis and accept that we are moving into an economic and a macro environment that is effectively always being reshaped by climate change events, continuing with that is mindless. So what we perhaps need to look at is other ways of generating electricity closer to the point that they're being used that also protect us from the risk of fires in terms of that connection. And so there's been strategies that have been talked about in the energy circles for more than 20 years where I might have a town that effectively has a solar array. A whole lot of businesses that are connected where they've got rooftop solar, they're connected in what we call a small grid. So if you like, I've got a whole lot of businesses that are daisy-chained, linked all together, and then I've got a computer processor that actually sits in there and just manages people taking energy out of the grid. So that entire town then becomes self-sufficient. We do it at the moment in our homes, uh, where we can do that in a home or business, where we put solar cells on the roof. But you can then link businesses and link homes to create a daisy-chained network that actually makes that town self-sufficient. And guess what? That doesn't then um, mean that you're relying on wires going through bushfire-prone territories to get power in. And this is one of the, uh, I guess, policy decision or policy changes you'd like to see as a body of COSBOA? Yeah, I think the big thing we've been talking about is, look, the argument of whether climate change is real or not, we think we've gone past that. Climate change is occurring, whether it's due to human-induced emissions from um, CO2 that have been created by settlement or whether it's a thousand-year-old patterns that have been repeated is actually irrelevant. We need to be developing responses that actually future-proof our communities. And an example is the one we've just given about saying, well, let's get to a point where we put that generation using clean sources. You know, the only issue you really get from an environmental perspective is you can see the solar cells on the roof where you might have a small wind farm in that area, but we're not talking about how belching um, coal-fired power stations on our back doorstep. We have the technology now. It is becoming increasingly affordable, and all we need is the policy settings by all Australian governments to support a process like that. Because energy is, is a state-based issue as well. I mean, we're talking, Gladys Berejiklian at the moment is talking about, you know, the importance of rebuilding this infrastructure. But if we're rebuilding it in the old way, we're not actually solving the problem moving forward where you've got entire towns or entire areas of Australia who are reliant on this electricity, which is coming from another source, another area, and has to travel through the bush to get to them. Are you saying that these changes have to happen almost now? They need This, this policy needs to change immediately while we're trying to rebuild? I think the issue for us is we should be thinking about it now. It's not, it, you know, the time for thinking about it, we've gone beyond that. And it's interesting when you look at um, what the electricity companies are actually doing. They've been frustrated by this debate about 
Um, are we going to put a carbon price in? Are we going to put a, a framework like the National Energy Guarantee? A lot of listeners would have heard about this thing called the NEG, which is where I said I put equal balance on reliability of energy and reduction of environmental emissions and affordability of electricity and create a framework that encourages investment in alternative forms of generation. How long has that been under discussion for? Well, that was actually the issue that is reportedly the one that brought Malcolm Turnbull down. Um, And there was a conversation, so that's 18 months ago, and there was a conversation 18 months prior to that. But the whole conversation about what do we do about energy and emissions and carbon dates back to 2006. So, you know, we're getting close to 15 years. Uh, I know it's only 14 and people are doing the sums there, but, you know, 15 years we've been at this. Surely we're smarter than that as a community. Mm, mm. And our concern at COSBOA is that this whole debate is being stymied by certain politicians in all levels of government who refuse to acknowledge the existence of climate change and believe any policy that might be being developed to manage risk offers a concession to the people who believe in climate change. So Cosboa is saying we've moved beyond that. Let's look at the adaptability and and the issues that are facing us right now with the impacts of climate change instead of talking about whether or not it's actually happening. Yeah, you've got to manifest risk. So if you've got a risk and it's in your face, then you need to do something about it. What the cause is, is sort of irrelevant. Now, there'll be people that will actually argue, well, to be able to solve a problem, you need to understand the nature of the risk and what's causing it. But in this particular case, you're never going to get absolute proof of climate change um, or that it's absolutely caused by um, human emissions. From our perspective, we believe it is. We believe that the evidence is irrefutable. But there'll be people that say, oh, well, it's only 98% sure, not 100% sure. But scientists will tell you you never get to absolute certainty. But what is certain are the fires, the increased frequency of disasters, the longer droughts, the closer proximity of those droughts and the impact on business, human settlements. And so from that perspective, we've got to put a risk framework in place, irrespective of the cause. You're listening to Small Biz Matters with Alexi Boyd. I've got Mark McKenzie here from COSBOA. He's the chair and he's discussing what the forward planning is in relation to the fires and the catastrophic events that are occurring right now. And let's face it, small business is experiencing right now. You're listening to Small Biz Matters. We'll be back after this short announcement. Welcome back to Small Biz Matters with Alexi Boyd. We're talking to the chair of COSBOA, Mark McKenzie, all about the forward planning, the thinking, the strategies, the policies and the advocacy that COSBOA supports small business with, in particular around the time that we're facing at the moment. Now, as we know, a lot of small businesses are experiencing some shattering times that literally have disappeared off the map. um, And there's a lot of issues in and around uh, what small business is experiencing. Can you tell me, um, Mark, from having spoken to your members and and the information that you're getting from professional associations as well, who is at most affected? And then what does the government need to do to respond appropriately to, to, to uh, support those who are in that, those affected zones. I think you've tapped into a really important question that we've been involved in over the past week, which really relates to who's eligible. So in these sorts of circumstances at the moment, uh, organisations like the Australian Tax Office provide automatic concessions, and they tend to amount to the fact that um, businesses that are affected in those um, fire areas or disaster hit areas 
have a two-month holiday from paying BAS, PAYG and other concessions. And they also can apply for additional um, additional concessions, which might mean I'm paying my tax back over a longer period. Mm. So, so if they've got, so for in a practical yeah. sense, if they've got payment plans in place, for example, obviously they are on pause. But can I just ask you for those listeners out there who are thinking about, well, what can I do in terms of I'm, you know, experiencing real difficulty? Is that where you literally pick up the phone and you ring the ATO and you say, okay, this has just happened? Or does the ATO, ATO kind of inherently know through postcodes? How does it work? So two things happen. Um, the first is they inherently know through postcodes. So what happens is areas are declared to be disaster areas. There's a whole set of postcodes attached to that. That gets fed to the ATO. They look at all the businesses in those postcodes and they're automatically entitled to the concessions. Generally what happens then is that information will be relayed to the business um, prior to them lodging a BAS. Or in other circumstances, people can just pick up the phone. The ATO actually have an emergency disaster hotline, which you can actually call and talk about your specific situation. The key thing for us, though, and what we've focused on a a little bit in recent weeks is this issue of eligibility, because the businesses that are eligible for that sort of concession are only those businesses that are in the postcodes affected directly by the fire. So the blackened ones, essentially. Yeah, the burnt ones that, Mm. that are operating in that area. Yet, with this particular instance, because they've been so widespread, because they're occurring in holiday periods, there's a whole lot of businesses that are located in the towns and the highways leading from the capital cities to these holiday areas that typically would have seen a real bump in traffic. So whether you're in the Alpine region or whether you're in Braidwood between Canberra and the South Coast as a major gateway in the South Coast, you know, the bakeries and the cafes were gearing up for real bumper trading. Mm. Now, in the case of Braidwood on the south coast um, of Canberra, of um, New South Wales, we got to a situation where the highway's been closed for three weeks. So the baristas and the bakery there have been reporting a 90% decline in revenue. At their busiest time. Exactly. So that six-week period where they might have done up to 40% of their revenue is all gone. They're a ghost town. Now, we have been arguing that they should be eligible for the same assistance. Yeah, they didn't get burnt, but they're directly affected as a result of the evacuation of these areas and the fact that people decided not to go on holidays. Now, we're not encouraging people to go on holidays into fire-prone areas, but the key thing here is there have been a whole lot of businesses surrounding these disaster or blackened areas, as you talk about, that should be entitled to assistance as well. And that's been the point we've been driving home in the past week. Does that fall under the, um, you know, when, when there's an emergency declared in an emergency area by the state government, um, that those certain postcodes are covered and then that follows through to the ATO? And what you're arguing is that almost an emergency needs to be declared in terms of those businesses um, outside of those areas as well. And, and that that needs to be incorporated and extended out. Yeah, our argument is rather than wait for those businesses to approach the ATO and go through a pretty torturous process of, well, we're not included, we should be, mm. is to actually include those additional areas because they've suffered the same fate as the businesses in the areas directly impacted. So road closures need to be incorporated and considered. Absolutely. Evacuations need to be considered. Absolutely. Right. So yep. it's almost like an expansion of the um, criteria by which those organisations are allowed to, to meet them and without having to make a phone call. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, automatically you do that. And we've got easy processes. I mean, one of the challenges here is you don't want taxpayer money being fritted on everybody who, who brings a spurious claim. But, you know, if we look at things like traffic volumes, it's very easy because all the road authorities in every state and territory are capturing information around the lower volumes, the number of road closures that have occurred. So it doesn't take much for the ATO. And they've got a great small business team in terms of the experience we've had to date, picking up the phone, talking to them 
and say, can you talk to me about the highways where I've had more than a 50% decline in holiday traffic? Yeah, And traffic. picking up those towns and adding those postcodes. And, and that's what we've been working on. And it's using the power, the data for the power of good. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about um, moving forward. Uh, now, I know in your report as the chairman, um, you've, you've said that you'd like to see government promoting actions that support the capacity of our population to adapt. And it seems as though that is the real clear messaging that you've got with your report. It's about adaptability with this new reality, irrespective of the reason as to why it's occurring. So let's talk about policy now. Um, now, there's three, seems to be three main standpoints, uh, water management, energy usage, which we've talked about a little bit, and industrial industrial relations law. Why are those the sort of main parts of what you're thinking about in terms of policy and what needs to be addressed for small business? Okay, so let's park industrial relations law just at this stage and come back to it. The first two, energy and water, are really essential services that communities need to operate. So they're essential for the well-being of those communities. And from a, a business input perspective, the cost of energy is something we all wear as small businesses. That's been going up much faster than CPI and other costs in our, inside our businesses. And we've had pretty flat revenues. So you've got a real, energy has been a real squeeze in terms of the profitability of small businesses over the last couple of years. Now, a large part of that has been because of the inaction, the inability of the federal government and the state territory governments to agree a framework that would support diversification of our generation from just sole reliance or heavy reliance on coal and hydro to picking up solar and wind and other forms of energy and doing that, as we talked about, by allowing innovative models like local localised generation and uh, mutual cooperatives that have been set up in local towns that allow them to generate and share electricity within their own area. It's not the electricity companies that are stopping this. Right? They, they are already working on those sorts of ideas and we've been quite active working with organisations like Energy Australia about exploring some of those ideas. Um, it's really been that the broader policy environment that is needed to support that sort of innovation is being stifled by this idiot conversation about coal is good or coal is bad. So this conversation we had earlier about the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, that for us is a framework that was developed over a five-year period. It had the support of all stakeholders, apart from a couple of small, I suppose we call them climate change deniers within the ranks of the coalition, that effectively use this as a vehicle to unseat a Prime Minister. Right. So essentially the way that Cosbo is thinking of this moving forward is uh, let's talk about the adaptability rather than the question about whether or not coal is good or bad. That can be a discussion for others, history, <laughs> whatever happens later on. But if, if we're just looking at what the way that the, the energy network needs to adapt to support small businesses in these regional towns which are so adversely affected um, by the impact of, of climate change and, and through fires which are ongoing. That's right. So we've developed a framework which has been tabled in the past which is the support of everyone that provides that flexibility. So let's just get on with it, put it in place that then allows everybody to explore some of these innovative Sounds mechanisms. really simple. Sounds like small business and how they go, I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to do this. And then I've made a decision and it's going to happen. That's what we essentially want to see government do. Make a decision and stick with it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's really the cut through here. Most small businesses are quite agile. They assess a problem quickly. They don't navel gaze and admire the problem. They look to see what the situation looks like and they re respond. And they take risk. And, and they, I think that that's absolutely. one thing that government has not been able to or almost had the ability or the forward thinking enough to go, well, look, we're going to go down this path and we're going to give it a go, could give it a red hot go yep. and then uh, we'll see we'll see what happens with it and hopefully it'll 
payoff, but there's just not enough risk-taking or they're just so concerned about uh, votes and, and being re-elected. Yeah, I think it's the real politics in the background. We've got a lot of vested interests and I suppose the question here is we need to sideline some of those vested interests for the, the good of all of us in terms of our future resilience and the economic prosperity of our communities. Is one of the ongoing um, strategies of COSBOA is to continue to reduce the amount of red tape? We mentioned industrial relations a little bit earlier and, and the way that um, industrial relations law can stymie the ability for a, 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 a small business to operate, let alone grow. Um, is that one of the things you'd like to see moving forward from policymakers is to just reduce the amount of admin burden on business? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen a worrying trend and something that's been keeping us busy and certainly will be something we're committed to over the next decade where governments have got a tendency to make small business the enforcer of their policies. So typically what happens is government sets policies, it sets rules in which markets and uh, households and businesses all operate and then those rules have to be enforced. And, you know, historically that's been the role of Regulators like the Fair Work Ombudsman, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, um, the Australian Securities Investment Commission. What we've seen over the last couple of years is a tendency for governments to try and downsize to save money in terms of financial admi- and, and uh, business administration so that they've got less resources to concentrate on enforcement of the regulations they've actually set. And then they put the obligations on the small business owner. So issues like wage underpayment, um, now I'm not for a minute saying that we countenance um, people not paying the correct wages, but it is so complex for most small business owners that it's very difficult to navigate. So they need people working with them, not simply saying, well, if you don't pay the correct wages, there's a risk here that you could be criminally prosecuted, which is a current conversation um, being pursued by the federal government at the moment. Um, we've got conversations around um, welfare, staff welfare. So the whole issue of mental health, which is a really important issue, and there's probably a lot of business owners listening right now that are dealing with people within their own businesses who struggle from different levels in terms of mental wellbeing. Um, but to suggest, as is being done by WorkSafe at the moment, that it's the responsibility of the business owner to ensure that their staff are emotionally in a, in a good state, that they're emotionally well off, um, and that if there were consequences in which they do something in terms of self-harm or something deeper as a result of a poor mental position, and then suggest that the business owner should have been aware of that and should have taken action, is ludicrous. So you're saying the liability of that becomes the, the business owner's responsibility almost entirely. That's right. So we're getting there to... There is a, a movement towards that. Yeah. It's almost like we're saying, okay, small business owners are going to enforce our policies. Well, the problem here that you get from a lot of governments is they'll be elected on the basis of saying, we're going to reduce red tape. And for the first 12 months, they do. They introduce a committee that looks to reduce red tape. Then for the next two or three years of the term, they introduce additional red tape as they're listening to a whole range of people talk about the issues that are involved. The real issue for us is to actually say, look, the responsibility for enforcement sits with government, not with small business. You need to create more time for us to work on our business because we can't keep filling out all your forms, providing all these reports, whether they be modern slavery, mental health wellbeing, um, safety. You know, we know about the safety of our staff. Almost every business owner is very conscious of that because the people that work with them, they treat like a family. But then doesn't that say that, you know, uh, this whole nanny state thing that the government shouldn't be responsible for everybody doing the right thing, so therefore we should put the burden back onto society? Isn't that a movement that everyone wants away from the nanny state? 
Oh, yes, I think so. But I suppose the question is here, um, really, when you get to individual role, there's a right of individual responsibility. As a business owner that has staff, my employees have a responsibility to look after themselves as well and to call out and to work with their medical practitioners in terms of taking charge of their own destiny. It's not the responsibility of a small business owner to provide the support or to provide guidance to employees around their mental well-being or their other physical well-being. It's those sorts of trends that we're really starting to push back on. Um, to say nothing of the, you know, the, the other issues that we tend to deal with at the moment in terms of compliance, you know, getting an application to be able to put a set of tables and chairs outside a cafe on a footpath. Um, some of those issues just are incredible in terms of the amount of work that's required from a business owner to just get the very simple things done. So you're in support of, um, uh, you know, changes like ease of doing business, like what they're rolling out in New South Wales at the moment, but it could be better. Exactly. And New South Wales has actually put a really, you know, they're taking leadership in this area at the moment. There's some really good work being done in that area. Um, seeing a bit in Victoria too, enabled by the ombudsman down there, and Kate Carnell at a federal level is calling out these issues all the time. So we work very closely with her office about understanding those issues and then lobby pretty hard because in a lot of instances, these are one-off concessions that have been gained, where we see that this is part of a broader policy, we'll actually push back on that. So it's another area of intelligence gathering for us. Let's talk about, uh, you know, the, the way that you see federal and state governments supporting small business. So apart from policy decisions and, the, you know, it, it indicating the way that we need to operate on a day-to-day -day level and, you know, trying to reduce the red tape, what about support mechanisms? Obviously, we've, we're faced right now with a situation where businesses need a lot of support to get back up and running because of the, the bushfire crisis. But moving forward, where would you like to see the emphasis on when it comes to support me mechanisms that the government can offer? Well, I think there's a range of ways here. Taxation is a big one. So we have um, been pushing for some time, and you asked about successes in the earlier part of this interview. Uh, one of the things we've been quite successful is getting the lower tax rate for businesses with turnover of less than $50 million. And so we continue to push for tax rates to be reduced. But for a lot of small businesses, you know, the profit they make is pretty modest anyway, and so many of them are micro-businesses that, you know, that's not a huge issue. Uh, investment support. So at the moment, we've got things like the instant asset write-off, which provides instant write-off and investment you've made for up to $30,000. Well, why isn't that uncapped for small business, maybe up to $10 million in turnover, so that they're able to amortise that investment within the year that they've actually made that investment? And for a lot of us, we live hand to mouth. So, you know, we'd like to think we're around there in another five years, but really we don't want to be in a situation here where we're making an investment now, hoping to be there in three or five years' time, and a bushfire comes through and wipes us out. So issues around tax uh, are important. And then the other is, issue is really about providing assistance to us in terms of helping us to be able to compete in what is becoming an increasingly electronic uh, economy, a digital economy. We hear it being bandied around all the time. One of the frustrations that we often hear from government is that they've got a whole range of investment programs and assistance programs where grants are available to help businesses set up websites, to establish electronic marketing and to build um, the electronic capacity, the ability of their business to compete. But for most of us as business owners, we don't understand it. And while we might be able to get some funds to be able to bring a specialist in, an IT consultant to actually help us with that, we've still got to take the time to talk about what is it our business does, why are we different, what products do we actually sell, and we don't have the time to do that. So this is really an intractable issue that we need to spend a bit of time thinking about in terms of how do we help 
time-poor businesses adapt better in terms of their ability to compete in these globalised markets now. You know, we've, we've got big businesses like Amazon and co that have the capacity through email to reach right down to your local customer in your local area in a way that we've never seen before. We need to provide small businesses with the capacity to fight back. And we're starting to see that. You know, there's a hairdresser in Pran in Victoria that actually develops their own products. And so they were really suffering as a result of um, losing salon business to some of the bigger stores and the bigger salons that were actually around. So they started marketing their products with a real niche of specialised natural products. They're now selling them into Europe, into China, from a little store that's operating in Pran. Those sorts of, of things are there where support's actually provided. The business owner there had the capacity, the IT capacity, to be able to advance that. Um, those are the sorts of examples that we should be looking at, but we need to recognise that most small businesses won't have the IT capacity or the time to be able to affect things like that. So it's a question of what else can we do to help them with that. You're listening to Small Biz Matters with Alexi Boyd. I'm speaking with Mark McKenzie, who's the chair of COSBOA, about policy and, uh, I guess, um, changes and, and the forward planning of the COSBOA advocacy group to support small business into the future. We've just been speaking about the importance of finding, I guess, Mark, a balance between limiting the amount of time that businesses need to spend on, uh, I guess, administration of their of their business and the requirements of government versus uh, also working with the disruptors in their industry. You know, every yep. single one of our, our businesses are being disrupted yep. by, um, you know, by e-marketing ploys from the larger companies and we're not really, I guess, um, we don't have the capacity to, to deal with that on a one-on-one -on -one level. What does COSBOA do as well as, you know, encouraging government to make certain decisions about support? But what can COSBOA do to filter that information down through the professional associations into members about what is available? Well, I think we've started doing that. So one of the things that we um, jointly did with the uh, federal government, Department of Industry and the minister uh, in charge of that area is to actually focus on national innovation games. So this is where we've actually created small periods of time. Now, it's still a day, but instead of um, working with people over complex programs is invite a couple of businesses, a selection of 10 businesses in a specific region to sit with the youngest and brightest minds of our TAFEs in our universities. So people who are very adept in business and marketing, electronic commerce, bring a real problem into the room and then go through a structured process of, of systems and critical thinking. Now, for us, it, it sort of seems a bit daunting, but it's really just a case of saying, what's the problem? And do that within a disciplined way. What are my options to solve the problem? And do that in a disciplined way. And then within that context, what's the best of those options? And what we've been finding in these programs, effectively, is they've brought some incredible solutions out of the woodwork. Um, so what you've got is this, by putting business people who know their business, know it inside out. So the business owners typically operate in these teams and then wrapping them up with students who have all these exciting ideas, um, some of them unbridled and totally unpractical, <laughs> others being conditions I might not have ever thought of. Um, putting those ideas together and then effectively what happens is the business walks out of the room if we've done our job well with a potential solution to implement and the wherewithal to be able to support it. 
And what we found then is we've been able to dovetail into if it involved an investment, a ten or $15,000 investment of having someone work with you, is then putting those businesses in touch with the assistance programs that are provided by state and federal government. Now, we've started those programs. We've run four of them. Um, it was a, a program that had been jointly developed uh, and advanced and approved by the federal government in the last budget, and it's operating for the next two years. So there's a small example. Our hope is by... Uh, effectively creating a small group of champions or people who've shown how to do it, that the peer-to-peer communication frameworks that exist in local communities can then share that information, Mm. not just the information about the idea, but also about the assistance programs that are actually available. Um, And for us, we've got a lot of hope in that area that we can do those sorts of things. Um, So that's one very practical area that we're actually working on and working in partnership with the federal government, not It's not a news headline breaker, but it's a bit of quiet action occurring in the background where small business is partnering with the federal government, uh, with the small business community and with the academic academic institutions of TAFE and universities to provide a very innovative solution, which doesn't involve me filling out a 40-page form and then waiting for government to come back to me in terms of a grant and then work out how I'm going to spend that money. It also exposes um, students at a multidisciplinary level to what small business experiences on a day-to-day level, which I think is really interesting because um, there's probably a bit of a disconnect between what um, university students think in terms of being a small business. They've all got the idea of entrepreneurship, but they don't really understand the machinations of, you know, day-to-day operations. Yeah, I think one of our biggest frustrations, particularly when we talk about innovation and, you know, attracting talent, because there'll be, quite apart from what we tend to talk about, I hear quite often certain sectors, particularly in regional rural areas, where the businesses cannot attract employees. Mm. They really struggle to get people on. So within that context, you're actually saying, well, we need to actually look at the physical face of small business and change the views that small business is somehow a group of Luddites who couldn't make it in big business and decided that they were just going to, you know, operate on a subsistence um, uh, basis. But really, from that perspective, you see a lot of really good ideas. We see legacy businesses. Most of the conversation that comes around innovation is about these startup businesses and app-enabled businesses. But the vast majority of people employed in the small business sector, and as you opened with, 50.5% of all the national workforce is employed now in small business. We're getting the situation that most of those are legacy businesses. They're your shops, your retail shops, your corner stores, your professional services firms. Um, They're the businesses that are looking to attract this sort of talent. And by things like the National Innovation Games, we give that emerging sector in terms of the workforce, these talented and younger, brightest um, individuals, the opportunity to see firsthand that actually small business is quite dynamic. Mm. They deal with a whole series of issues. They're very forward thinking. They're very adaptive. And it's actually a great place to work. So one of the associated benefits of this program has just been to improve the capacity where we're actually helping students think that one option for them is maybe not to go and work in a big business or risk all their capital and their livelihood on a startup, but to work with the large number of legacy businesses that make up the small business sector in Australia. Well, it certainly gives us a hope for the future. If we can attract the right talent, we can look at, at growth and, 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 I guess, giving ourselves our own opportunity at legacy through the next generation. That's right. Mark, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today and talking to us about 
what the forward planning is for COSBO, what the future holds for the organisation and the way that you're supporting um, and looking after the small businesses now that are directly affected through this crisis that, that they're in. Um, where can people find out more about COSBO and how they can connect or find out what the programs are that you're running? Um, so the easiest way is just to go to our website. We've got a very active website at cosboa.org.au and we have a couple of social media pages, both Facebook and Instagram, that people can actually get in touch with. I mean, our hearts go out to the people that are affected and are operating businesses in those areas that have been devastated by the fires. If you're encountering challenges in terms of navigating that process, send us an email, ceo at cosboa.org.au or my email, chair at cosboa.org.au or just give us a call and we'll do whatever we can. I would also suggest that um, we take advantage of the Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman, Kate Cunnell and her team in Canberra because they've been doing a lot of work here in terms of just giving businesses guidance on what they can actually do. Um, so to that extent, there are a couple of support mechanisms that we uh, potentially can use to get an idea of what assistance you might be able to access now. Well, if you've missed any of today's program, you can, of course, catch up via the smallbizmatters.com.au website where you can find over 150 podcasts to listen to, just like this one, embedded in small business education and support for small business community around Australia. Thank you very much again, Mark, for joining us on Small Biz Matters. Thanks, Alexi. It's been a real pleasure to uh, sit down and have a chat with you about these issues. And we'll uh, see you all next week on another great episode of Small Biz Matters on Triple H 100.1 FM.